You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, Episode 177. The Life and Times of Martin Van Buren, Part 1. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, there is a man I'm about to tell you about... Well, actually, we're going to tell each other about him. Uh, his name is Martin Van Buren, and he has the craziest hair of almost any president you have ever seen. Our eighth president of the United States, Marty. Yeah, I. you know, it may not have been that his hair was that crazy. I think that he was just one of the earliest people who took up the the look of having a fan being blown right in your face and maybe a couple of fans being blown on you <laughs> while your picture's being taken. I, I yeah, think that's yeah. that's what's going on there. That, that makes sense to me, too. Uh, maybe he's like the first guy with a flock of seagulls haircut or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but either way, he was born back in 1782. So that basically makes him a trendsetter, in my opinion, 230 years ago, uh, having <laughs> having some of the craziest hair. Can you imagine? Okay, I'm just going to derail already. Here, here we go. Early on in the episode, can you imagine now if you were the president and your hair looked like that? Wait, never mind. Oh, Ben, never mind. We've got a, we've actually got a couple politicians in office right now that their hair is crazy, and it's just like it's like we went through a period of time where your hair didn't matter. And then we went through a period of time where your hair really mattered. Mm-hmm. And now we're back where it's like, whatever, your hair is just there. Not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I was always taught, you know, you better have your hair trimmed above the ears. Back of your hair can't touch the collar. Yeah. That's kind of if you're going to be anyone. I Unless you're the a first... rock star or something. Yeah. We're getting way, way far off. <laughs> As I mentioned, Marty Van Buren was born in 1782 in the village of Kinderhook, New York, which is pretty near Albany uh, and the Hudson River. And you guessed it. He is the first president to be born in the United States of America after the United States declared independence from Great Britain. Absolutely crazy. And even crazier than being the first, can you say, native-born American, that his first language isn't English, it's Dutch, because, well, Kinderhook was not exactly a major city at the time, or maybe even presently, but Kinderhook was a little out of the way, and the people in the fair city spoke Dutch, and yeah, that was the case in the Van Buren household. 
If you're going to be a member of this house, you're going to speak Dutch. <laughs> well, Abraham, uh, Martin's father, was a farmer. And he owned a little inn called the Kinderhook Inn. And he also owned six slaves. And, you know, he was actually a big fan of the American Revolution and being a patriot and all that good stuff. And he was actually not only supportive, but he was also a captain in the local militia. You know, this guy is pretty active in politics and, um, you know, local politics and national politics or what would soon be national politics, I suppose you could say. And so you can pretty easily tell where Martin probably got some of his love for political things in general and um, his heart of a patriot, I guess you could say. Wow, that sounds like a book. Heart of a Heart Patriot? Of a patriot. Yeah. Yeah. It might be. If if it is, I haven't read it. It's my new um it's my new revolutionary era Western romance or something. Hmm. Yeah. I think you I think you might be on to something then. Hey, I'm a I'm a trendsetter. <laughs> so Marty's mother was married to somebody else before she married Marty's dad. Not very controversial because, well, her first husband passed away, and she brought a couple of kids into the marriage. Uh, Marty had a half-sister and two half-brothers, and then Marty's dad and Marty's mom had, in addition to Marty, four kids. There could have been a much easier way for me to say that. I could have said something Brady Bunch-like, but it's not really like the Brady Bunch. Just know this. Marty had some siblings. Some of them were half-siblings. There you go. <laughs> so Marty gets a pretty basic education, and his formal education ends before he even gets to be 14. And he ends up going off to read law at the office of Peter Sylvester, uh, some Federalist attorneys that were there in Kinderhook. So Marty was a pretty small guy, and he you know, came in under what we would consider an average height for a man. Uh, nowadays, he was five feet, six inches tall. And, well, when he gets out to do some law stuff, he, he doesn't really take care of the way he looks, and he looks pretty kind of a ragtag-looking guy. And so the guys he worked for were like, you know, buddy, you could probably get a lot further in your life if you would, like, tuck in your shirt and uh, comb your hair and stuff like that. And uh, you're pre- we think you're pretty smart with the politics, but get it together. And this is kind of where he started learning how to, you know, be presentable in public. Yeah. So he hung out uh, with the Sylvester's, um, you know, Peter Sylvester's family. And they influenced him in the ways of the Democratic Republican Party. So there seemed to be some good alignment there. And they were like, hey, you need to go to the big city. New York City, that is. And he goes for his last year of apprenticeship in the office of John Van Ness's brother, William P. Van Ness. And what you need to know about William P. Van Ness is that he was a political lieutenant of Aaron Burr. Dun, dun, dun. So... Van Buren gets admitted to the bar in 1803, and in 1807, he marries Hannah, and get this, Ben, that would be, like, really weird to think that one of our siblings would marry each other. 
us uh-huh. being cousins and all. He married his first cousin once removed. Hmm. What's the once removed? Do you know? A first like, cousin once removed? Yeah, I think that's like your kid is my first cousin once removed. Don't we do this a lot? We we have these discussions I just can't. A lot. I thought that's a second cousin. Oh, I don't. Now, now you've got me confused again, too. And I think you're right. First cousin once removed would be something else. It's like an intermediate relative of some sort <laughs> so anyway well, <laughs> <laughs> i i'm just baffled and confused and if anybody knows what a first cousin once removed is i'm not gonna take the time to google it tweet us or something there's and, probably like charts and stuff out there but i don't have time to look them up either right so what you need to know is hannah who was marty's first cousin once removed, they get married. And like him, she was raised speaking Dutch. And it is said that she had a very distinct accent throughout her life. They had five sons and a daughter, and they went on to have illustrious lives. Um, Abraham was a graduate of West Point, and John went on to graduate from Yale and become Attorney General of New York. Marty Jr. I, you know, I don't know if they called each other Marty, but that's what we're going to call him. Marty mm-hmm. Jr. He edited a lot of his father's papers, but he died young uh, from tuberculosis. And um, there was Winfield Scott, who I would imagine was named after a good friend that we'll talk about later. And Smith Thompson, who became the special assistant uh, to Marty during his presidency. Uh, their daughter was stillborn, unfortunately. And after 12 years of being married, Hannah also contracted tuberculosis and died at the age of 35 years old. How does this all work into the equation? Well, he becomes president later on. What do we do about the first lady? We're going to talk about that in the next episode, though. Yeah. In this episode, we're going to talk about Van Buren's early political career. And we've already discussed that Marty was active in politics from, oh, at least the age of 18, if not earlier, probably closer to 14, even though he wasn't really involved in politics, he was involved in political doings. And uh, when he was about 18, he went to a convention for the Democratic Republican Party in Troy, New York. And he was there working for John Peter Van Ness, and uh, was helping out with some different nominations and special election and stuff like that. He gets together with his half-brother and establishes a practice and everything like that and uh, becomes financially secure, raises some money, etc., and decides, hey, I'm really going to hone in on politics. Uh, Of course, he continues to be a, a supporter of the Democratic Republican Party and... Well, the rest is history, I suppose you could say. So through a weird series of events, Van Buren becomes the surrogate of Columbia County in New York, and uh, he does that until 1813, and the Federalist Party comes to town and takes over, and uh, they get a majority and kick Van Buren out. He was next a member of the New York State Senate uh, from 1813 to 1820, and does a lot of crazy stuff there as part of the opposition party. Um, That would be the Democratic Republicans. 
So, so from 1813 to 1820, Van Buren is actually a member of the New York State Senate as well. Uh, after 1815, he becomes the New York Attorney General, which is kind of a big deal, if you ask me. And uh, he replaces William Floyd as a presidential elector in 1820. So from about, oh, 18... 08 to 1820, Martin Van Buren, Marty, as we know and love him, uh, is a pretty busy guy doing lots of different things, serving on lots of different committees, serving on the state senate for that matter, and uh, just kind of doing it up. Yeah, you might be wondering, okay, what's going on in the decade of the 18-teens? Well, of course, there's this big war going on, the War of 1812. Well, Van Buren is a state senator, And he doesn't serve in the military, but he does a few things that the military sees as being beneficial, including introducing bills to expand the New York militia and increase soldier pay. And then he was also a special judge advocate who served as one of the prosecutors of William Hull during Hull's court-martial following the surrender of Detroit. We've talked about that. That was Mm -hmm. a very unfortunate series of events in that war. In uh, 1814 and into 1815, he hung out with Winfield Scott, and they discussed ways to reorganize the New York militia, just in case there was another military campaign that would happen that year. And the reorganization of the militia would have included a position for Van Buren. But guess what? The war ended in February of 1815 and Scott and Van Buren were like, cool, we don't have to worry about that. (laughs) So uh, he also uh, originally opposed the Erie Canal, but then he was like, well, that sounds good. I think maybe if we can get some uh, bonds sold rather than just taxing people to death to get it. Um, Why not? And during this time, he also served as a member of the University of the State of New York Board of Regents. And he, during this time, really begins to sow the seeds of what's going to make him a powerhouse because machine politics was being birthed around this time. Yeah, we've talked about machine politics in the past, right? It's basically there's a group of people all moving very quickly and fastly towards one particular goal, and you kind of just get wrapped up in the machine, and the machine kind of works without you telling it what to do. You just put in the input, and it spits out the results, right? So uh, you've basically got this political machine, these political machines happening that... um, are kind of undefeatable for a while, I guess you could say. Uh, and I, I guess to an extent, they have never stopped, but this is kind of the heyday of the political machine. It's kind of crazy, Ben, because, I mean, he's getting all these nicknames, right? They, he had the nickname Little Van. Yeah. Because he was 5'6". Could you imagine somebody today giving somebody who was shorter in stature a nickname like that? And then during this time... You know, he's, he's, I was going to call him the spin doctor, but that title belongs to our buddy, Alex Hamilton, but they call him the little magician. 
Yeah. I mean, what would you do if somebody called you <laughs> little magician? Do you ever feel that way if somebody calls you buddy? Hey, buddy. Hi. I feel like you're belittling <laughs> me, buddy. Hey, buddy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Little magician. How would you like me to give you that nickname? I don't think I would enjoy that. I mean, no. it wouldn't. I guess it wouldn't bother me because it wouldn't make any sense. But if it made a little bit of sense, it would really bother me. I'd have a chip on my shoulder. Yeah, for sure. So Van Buren uh, is a member of the 1820 State Constitutional Convention. And of course, during this time, he's like, hey, expanding voting rights. Yeah, let's go for it. But, but this doesn't make any sense, but I'm about to say it anyway. Uh, universal suffrage? No, I don't think so. Let's make sure that property ownership is still a requirement for voting. Cool. Yeah, so he's getting all of these alliances together on the state level. He sees the benefit of, hey, these people seem to share these same values or opinions. And there was this group called the Albany Regency. Now, these group of, we'll just say they're cronies, right? They are leaders. And for more than a generation, they dominated the politics of New York. And they had influence on the national scale, but nothing like what was going to happen in the future. Um, The Regency worked with other political organizations like Tammany Hall. We've talked about them. They played a huge role in expanding the spoils system. And they pretty much made it an acceptable practice to have the system where it's a crony environment. And, Van Buren said, without strong national political organizations, there would be nothing to moderate the prejudice between free and slaveholding states. So we're thinking, hey, this doesn't sound like a kosher thing, right? To get a bunch of cronies together and they're going to spin things so a particular party comes to the forefront. But Van Buren's saying, hey, we need these strong organizations because we need to make sure that there's balance on the national level. And yeah, slavery, we need to make sure that it's held down and that there is a mechanism to do that. So he spun this idea of machine politics to sound like a noble thing. Speaking of slavery, which you just mentioned, uh, we talked about the fact that Marty's dad owned uh, six slaves. Well, early on in Marty's life, he owns a slave as well, and the slave's name is Tom, and he's actually serving as his personal valet, so probably not as poor conditions as many other slaves, but a slave nonetheless. And so Tom decides in 1814 he's going to run away, and he runs to Canada, and Marty's like, you know what, I'm not even going to try to find him. Um Maybe he didn't have the energy. Maybe he didn't really want to have a slave. Who knows? But in 1824, so 10 years after uh, Tom had run away, Tom is found to be living in Massachusetts. And technically, Marty still owns Tom at this point. And uh, he knows that the the gradual emancipation law is coming around here in New York and slavery is going to be abolished in a few years. So some people come to Marty and they're like, hey, we would like to um, go out and find your slave and then we'll buy him from you for $50. And 
And Marty's like, yeah, that sounds good. We'll do that. But but if you find him, you have to guarantee that you can capture him without violence. And the guy's like, no, I can't guarantee that. So not going to happen. And Marty's like, you know what? He's going to be emancipated in a few years. So uh, let's let's not bother with it. And... <laughs> He probably wanted Tom to remain free, period. Uh, but this was a good out for him because uh, Southern slave owners would have been really offended if Marty just, you know, totally let Tom go. But he also didn't really want to be the bad guy by going out and trying to hunt the slave down, hunt Tom down. So uh, he kind of wins on both sides on that one there just by doing nothing, essentially. Yeah. Like magic. As if he were a little magician. A little magician he he is. <laughs> so let's back up just a smidge to February of 1821. We're kind of in the middle of all this. Uh-huh. If we were to have a timeline of this episode, I feel like it would be a little squealing marks, but it's not really a timeline. I feel like if we were to have a timeline of all of our episodes put together, it'd be really confusing. It would be. Yeah. So in February of 1821, Marty is elected to the U.S. Senate, where he's going to represent New York. And he's all about getting infrastructure taken care of. He's wanting to repair some roads, build canals. He even proposes a constitutional amendment to authorize these improvements. But the next year, he's like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> he votes for uh, some tariffs in 1824 and 1828 and then abandons the protectionist position. And he's like, hey, uh, tariffs, they're good for revenue only. So let's talk about 1824 for just a moment. We harped on 1824 big time around the election because... That was a very confusing election. You have this deal in 1824 where the loser of the electoral college, or should I say a loser of the electoral vote, wins the presidency. John Quincy Adams, he's in. And you've got this mess of politicians involved in this election. And that's how Adams wins. You have William H. Crawford. You've got Andy Jack. You've got Henry Clay. And what ends up happening is the House of Representatives chooses the president. So New York was pretty vital in this because the state was divided between supporters of Crawford and Adams. And what ends up happening is everybody was thinking, eh, it looks like Crawford is going to have the advantage here. But you have Representative Stephen Van Rensselaer swinging New York to Adams. So Adams wins the presidency. And Adams, of course, selects Henry Clay to be his secretary of state. And there's this talk of the corrupt bargain because Clay was really influencing things for Adams. It's just a mess going on. And Van Buren isn't very happy about this because he was very supportive of Crawford. And then he was supportive of Jackson, but the presidency went to Adams. So what happens in 1828 is Marty runs for New York governor and he wins, but he only serves from January until March because 
Andy Jack appoints Van Buren as his Secretary of State, which gave him a lot of influence in Andy Jack's administration. Because if you remember the whole petticoat affair, and you remember Marty's wife, well, she's been dead for a while. There's no lady <laughs> on his part to have an influence or have any role in the controversy surrounding that. So in February of 1821, Marty is elected as a U.S. Senator, and this begins his entrance on the national stage as a politician in his own right. And that is where we are going to pick it up on Thursday. Jason, you just left me hanging on the edge of my seat. How dare you? I know. I hate when I do that. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, you know what I hate when you do? I hate it when you don't go to Patreon to check out our page. (laughs) I really do. Uh, It's electioncollege.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can go over there and find out the different ways you can support. Well, not really different ways. There's just like basically one way, but different amounts of money that you can use to support Election College. Uh, We really do appreciate when people go on there and support us and say, hey, we want to help you out with the uh, hosting fees and all that good stuff, uh, you can go over, once again, the website is patreon.com slash electioncollege or electioncollege.com slash patreon. Help us out for as little as a dollar a month, which ends up being 11 cents an episode. That's right. Some of you guys are enjoying every episode. 11 cents a piece. Not too bad. Yeah. I once heard somebody say that every time you put a dollar down to spend it, it's like voting. How appropriate would that be? Now we're starting to sound like PBS. Hey, you know, another way that gets our hearts a flutter, that is when somebody leaves a rating and review in iTunes. And when they hit the subscription button, well, we don't necessarily see that. But what we do see is our rating goes up. If you would go to electioncollege.com slash iTunes, hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. It helps us so much. And we appreciate every one of you who have recently left us a review. You can also interact with us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Election College. Yes, we do jump up and down and scream a little bit when somebody tweets us. Hey, we don't do this all the time, but I happen to just have one pulled up. Jonathan Z. Green left us a review this week. It says, this is quite late. It's okay, Jonathan. We don't mind. But I've started listening recently. This is a great podcast. Very informative and funny. Well done. Well, we are happy you think our humor <laughs> is actually humorous because, well, sometimes we don't laugh at ourselves. So, uh, thanks. Leave us a review. Like I said, we don't always get to read them, but when we do... Uh, you can guarantee that we read them internally at least, but when we do read them, cool. It really, uh, it's kind of nice to know that you're out there. Yeah. And even the reviews that say the likes kind of, and sort of make you sound like you only kind of sort of know what you're talking about. Hey, we receive that. Yeah. Is that true? Do we only kind of sort of know what we're talking about, Jason? Apparently if you're under 35, uh-huh. you get it. Okay, cool. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk next time.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.